My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Let us pray. Lord, during this time of Lent, please uh, fill our hearts with the Holy Spirit and help us to live the fruits of the Spirit that we might glorify you in the things that we think, say, and do, whether at church, at home, at school, at work, wherever. And help walk beside us during this time where there's certainly fear and uncertainty and anguish and illness, and uh, help us to find comfort in you. And we so much appreciate your blessing on this church, and we ask a blessing on Jim as he comes forward to deliver the message today, and we're just grateful in our hearts for your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Bruce. For those of you that weren't here for the announcements, um, our projector is kaput. It's broke. We don't know if it gave up the spirit. We don't know if it has a demon. We don't know if the light bulb burned out. I don't know what it happened. All we know is that it died. So we had to do it the old-fashioned way. Now, everybody online had the advantage of having the words, but you did not. Okay, we have a problem here, and I had to sort it out. We have a group here visiting us from Illinois, is it? Right? And you are uh, all out here skiing and snowboarding, right? Welcome. Glad you're here. I asked all the... Yeah, right. I asked all the snowboarders to leave, and Jerry, you can leave with them. Okay. No, then I thought about it. that wouldn't be right because Jesus welcomes sinners. So we'll we'll allow the <laughs> we'll let you stay. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> let me remind you and those of you online, as you begin to feel safe coming back, we are uh, having Sunday school for our children. And so if you would like to teach Sunday school, we would love to have you. Okay, we could use your help. If you've never done it before, that's okay. All you have to do is read a script. Well, it's not quite that hard, easy, but uh, no, we'd love to have you uh, consider teaching Sunday school with the kids. It'd be great to have you. Okay. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I'm sure all of you, at one time or another, has asked the question, why me? Or where are you, God? Um, often that occurs in some of the deepest despair when struggles come and challenges come and you feel alone and you don't quite know what to do with it. Jesus obviously felt that because he said it. What's really amazing about this passage, though, that makes us stand out, you got to remember, he's on the cross and, uh, and the cross, not only is it extremely cruel and painful, but it's a death and asphyxiation because you're hanging, right? And you have to stand up to breathe. So both Matthew and Mark said that he said this in a very loud voice. Most of us, when we say, why me or where are you, God? We don't shout it out. We say it quietly. True? So what would prompt him to stand up to use all that effort, that energy, to push against a nail in his foot, to get enough breath to say out loud, very loud, 
my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why does he want people to hear that? If we can answer that question, then we have a good insight into what's going on in this passage. So remember what we're doing. We, uh, we're in Leviticus, telling us the love story of the Bible. Leviticus is all about that. We got to Leviticus 14, where those that are ill or uh, defiled in some way have to go outside the camp. And then to come back into the camp, they offer a sacrifice once the priest has pronounced them clean. That's a time of rejoicing. And then once they go into the tabernacle, they offer another sacrifice to reconnect with the Lord. So they've been outside the camp where it's alone. Okay, Some of you know that's what I felt like three weeks ago in ICU. I posted that on my social media, not knowing that I was going to have over 1,400 engagements on that. So I touched a nerve with some people. And so... Um, Hebrews tells us, Hebrews 13, that Jesus had to go outside the camp to suffer and atone for our sin. And then he says, let us therefore go outside the camp and share the disgrace that he bore. So now we're in a season of Lent. So we paused Leviticus and left all those sick people outside the camp. And now we're joining Jesus outside the camp. And the way we're doing that is we're standing at the foot of the cross and we're listening to his seven last words. So we're going to, we're just standing there listening. We're in a great crowd. Remember that uh, crucifix, crucifixions were carried out in very populous places where people would come. Plus it was a spectacle. They did it on purpose as a deterrent to people. You don't want to be the person hanging up there. That's how painful it was. It's a time of shame. It's a time of uh, brutal brutality and pain, sexual assault, things like that. And so we're standing there at the foot of the cross listening to these seven last things that Jesus said. The seven last words of Jesus, when you put them all together, capture the theology of both the Old and New Testaments, and so forth. They're part of us. They are representing us. We're going to find ourselves again in this one today. When we first started on Ash Wednesday, we talked about, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So remember, the Gospels have all these people there, and the Gospels make it a point to identify all the groups of people that were mocking him and shaming him. The Roman guards the Jewish leaders, the throngs of people, even one of the criminals on the cross. They were mocking him. And right in the midst of that, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. Then the next, uh, so there we talked about life, that uh, forgiveness brings life. And we talked at that point about in our deepest suffering, that's the time to forgive those, especially if someone else caused it. Father, forgive them. Then we move from there to today you will be with me in paradise because one of the criminals didn't mock him. And um, in fact, he rebukes the other criminal. And he asked Jesus, would you remember me when you come into your kingdom? It's one of the few places where Jesus is named as Jesus. Uh, that's not common. And so what he asked for was to be uh, somewhere in the future that Jesus would, would remember who he is when he establishes his kingdom. But what we got was a promise that was fulfilled today. Today... Today you will be with me in paradise. And that brings up the sense of hope. Now, he didn't ask for that, but that's what he got. He got a real gift. Today, in just a few short hours when you both have died, we'll be together again. Then we move from there to woman. Here is your son. And here he is at the end of life, on the cross, in excruciating pain, and he remembers his mother. The firstborn is responsible to take care of the mother if the father had passed and the father had I think Joseph was gone by now. So Jesus says, Mother, here's your son. 
to the beloved disciple. He's taking care of his mother. That's a real clear picture of love. So today we're looking at perhaps one of the most lonely moments in life for Jesus, which is why he cries out. He's now getting closer to death. He's been silent for a while on the cross, and he, he conjures up the energy to stand up and shout out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He wants everybody to hear it. So once again, he's thinking about everybody else and what's happening. Feels like a cry of abandonment to us, doesn't it? In fact, I've heard pastors preach that this is a place where the Trinity actually has a schism for a short period of time. This is where God had to turn his back on sin, all that kind of good stuff. I don't buy any of that. That doesn't make sense to me. The Trinity is always a Trinity, always wholesome, always united, always integrated. God wouldn't have to turn his back on sin. I think there's a much more organic or wholesome reason for this. Okay, now remember, his entire experience was one of shame, humiliation, insult, embarrassment, and temptation. We think of the temptations as what happened at the beginning of the Gospels, but it tells us that Satan left him until a more opportune time. Let's think with me just for a moment about what Jesus was doing on the earth to understand the concept of temptation, because it plays a role in this. We're told in Hebrews that he came and was, and was tempted in every way just as we are, yet without sin. Okay? You're familiar with that language. Here's the problem. The first moment he acted as God, he's no, no longer like me. But didn't he do miracles? Yeah. Didn't he read other people's minds? Sure he did. So he did act as God. Well, then he's no longer like me. You see, here's the, here's the theological key that unlocks it. You don't have to know God to do a miracle. I mean, you don't have to be God to do a miracle. You have to know God. That's why I can say to the disciples, you saw what I did? You're going to do greater things than I did. They did. The only thing that the disciples could not do that Jesus did was atone for sin. It's the only thing. And so I personally believe that everything Jesus did from the time he was born until the time he died, he acted as a human to give us a picture of what it looks like. Luke emphasizes all the way through Luke that the Holy Spirit guided him. Holy Spirit led him into temptation. The Holy Spirit did this. He prayed in the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit gave him information. That's why we have those passages that appear troubling, but they're not really troubling. Only the Father knows the day and the hour. Or the woman come up and touches him with an issue of blood, and he said, who touched me? If he was God, he would have known that. Okay? He was God, so I don't in any way want to, de- to uh, lower that. He was God. But if I understand Philippians correctly, he chose not to use those divine prerogatives while he was on the earth. In other words, he really wanted to live life like you and me. He wanted to entrust himself to the Holy Spirit like we have to do. And so sometimes the Holy Spirit didn't give him information. He didn't know who touched him. Okay? If he had exercised the divine prerogative of omniscience, he would have known that. He trusted the Holy Spirit to heal people. If he had exercised his divine prerogative of omnipotence, he could have done it himself, but he chose not to. That's why he lived life just like we do as a human. Okay? So his entire life, his entire life was a life of temptation. His temptations weren't, aren't temptations for me. I, there's a way I could turn stone to bread. I mean, bread to stone. Got that backwards. 
Nancy says, I have verbal dyslexia. I do. I get things backwards. So there's no way I could have turned a stone into bread. Remember one of the last things the centurion said to him on the cross? You're the Messiah. Come down from the cross. Remember what he said to Peter when Peter cut off the servant's uh, uh, ear? Don't you know that I could call legions of angels if I wanted to? He chose to live life like you and me. And so in the final moments of his life, he experiences what all of you have experienced. Why me? Where are you, God? So in the moment of his most extreme loneliness and pain, he experiences that loneliness that we have felt. We'll come back in a minute and talk about what that means because you've all been through it. So think about the context, what he's gone through. He's just been accused of blasphemy and condemned to death by the high priest, Matthew 26. In fact, all these come from Matthew 26 and 27. He's disowned by Peter. He's betrayed by Judas. He's handed over for execution by Pilate. He's mocked and beaten by the soldiers. He was insulted by the bystanders and onlookers. He was mocked by the Jewish leadership. He was even insulted by one of the criminals who's with them. And it's at this point, at this point, that he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a quote from Psalm 22. I'm going to go back to Psalm 22. Because this psalm is a very, very important psalm. Assuming I can find Psalm 22. So I'm going to read the opening statement again. My God, my God. Normally we have the verses up here for those of you that, so you can look them up on your device if you want to. You're just going to have to listen today. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish. If the superscription is correct, and I think it probably is, this was written by David. There are many times in his life when he's being chased by the Canaanites, the Philistines, all of that. Don't know when he wrote this, but there are many times in his life where this would be true. Okay, So listen to the words again. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out day Day by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. This is the only saying of Jesus captured in Matthew and Mark on the cross. Um, And Matthew wants us to understand that Psalm 22 is the backbone for what happened on the cross. Okay? Okay. So I'm going to read several passages and to you out of uh, Matthew, and then I'm going to, and then uh, I'll read to you the corresponding passage out of the Psalms. So right off the bat, one of the things we learn is that when Jesus stands up, he's making a claim to being the Messiah. By this time in Jewish theology, Psalm 22 was known as a messianic psalm. So we have two things going on. One is he's expressing his humanness. We'll come back to that in a minute. But the other one is he's claiming Messiahship. Because Psalm 22 was a messianic psalm. So Matthew is tying all of these dots together for us, if you will. So in Matthew 27, verse 35, it says, When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. 
Psalm 22, 18. Go ahead and put that up there, Maggie. Psalm 22, 18. My God, my God. Oh, yeah. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. No, that's verse 19. Go back to verse 18. There's no 18 there? Oh, there is. They divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. That's Psalm 22, 18. And then in Matthew 27, 39, he says, Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads. And then uh, in verse 43, he says that, uh, let me get down a little bit further because it's captured by two Psalms. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. Now look at verse, 20, uh, verse 7 and 8 of Psalm 22. All who seek me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. And then Jesus quotes Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So this is not only a fulfillment of Psalm 22. It's a declaration of his Messiahship. And Matthew ties all that together so we can see it. But yet we know from Deuteronomy 4 that God has promised, he had promised his uh, children, his people, that he would not abandon them. And this feels like abandonment, doesn't it? So something else must be going on here with these words. Psalm 22 raises a question. Why did God abandon his son, if that's what it means? David, okay, I'm thinking about David in Psalm 22. Why did God abandon David at his most vexing moment? And this is the the very question being raised by Jesus on the cross. So Psalm 22 is an example of um, a very perplexing form of abandonment. When the righteous are at the mercies of their um, enemies, there's no help in sight. What do you do? Some of you have been there in very troubling places of life when there appears no help on the horizon. What do you do? What happens then? And Psalm 22 is wrestling with that very question. So the answer is actually found in Psalm 22, that abandonment is only temporary. In verse 19, for example, But you, Lord, do not be far from me, You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. So the Lord will quickly strengthen the abandoned one. In verse 20, the very next verse, Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. So the Lord will deliver him. That's what David's faith is. Psalm 22, 21. Rescue me from the mouth of the lion. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. He will rescue them. You see, this is a test of faith. That's what it is. It's a test of faith. He goes on from there in verse 22. He says, I, dec- I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. So the abandoned one, whatever that word means, the abandoned one will end up praising his name and honoring him. You know, um, when my, uh, most of you have heard the story of my first wife dying, I was holding her when her heart stopped. And uh, of course, immediately all the the tears of pain and loneliness broke out. And I just wept. 
But immediately at the same instant, literally within two seconds, I started to chuckle. My, one of my best friends was with me in ICU, and he said, why are you laughing? And I said, the Lord just took away the most important person to me, and I still love him. My faith is real. It's real. It's not academic. It's not theoretical. It's real. And the second thing that immediately followed on that is, who is this God that I serve that would take away my wife like that? Who is this God? You see, suffering, aloneness, puts you in a position of moving in one of two directions, driving your faith deeper or shaking your fist in anger. It's even a it's even hard to live in denial at that point. It really puts you in a position of having to learn at a deeper level who, what do you really believe? What is your genuine faith? Some of you know that uh, four years ago or whatever it was, I was diagnosed with bladder cancer. Didn't expect it, didn't want it. Last thing I wanted. And I came home and I got up in the middle of the night, I couldn't sleep. Um, and I went in the den and sat there and shed tears. I didn't want bladder cancer. And I finally, you know, finally said, okay, serving the life, I've been serving the Lord for four decades. What do I really believe? So at the end of John, Jesus goes and finds Peter. Peter had betrayed Jesus three times. He denied him. And he asked him three times to equal that, do you love me? The third time he asked that question, Peter says, you know all things, Lord. You know that I love you. So I sat there on the couch in the den, and I said, okay, Lord, you know all things. You already know that I love you. You've tested me so many ways, and I know it's true, too. I know it's true, and you know it's true. Therefore, this is not about you and me. What are you doing with my church? And that's one of the first times I began to understand Paul's language of he was honored that he was filling up the sufferings of Christ in his body. He said, you want to use me for this as a prop in front of my church? I'll let you do it. It's not about me. I've already been tested. Every one of our elders just has their faith tested. That's a requirement to be an elder in our church. They've had their faith tested, and it's strong, and it's deep. And that's what suffering does. Because he goes on in Psalm 22 and adds to it. And what happens is you see this turn beginning to occur in theology. You start with the trauma. Why have you forsaken me? And then you get to the reality. Everybody is chasing me for my life. And then your theology kicks in and you get to the truth. And here it is. Okay. Verse 22 and 23. I will declare your name to my people in the assembly. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. That's written to you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. So I tried my hardest during all the cancer to stand up here and lead you well to strengthen your faith too. God wants to use me, he can use me. I want your faith to be stronger because that's where my faith had made the turn and now I'm realizing what the Lord is doing. 
But then he goes on in verse 26. The poor will eat and be, and there's other verses in here. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. So the poor will eat and be satisfied. Verse 27, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations will bow down before him for dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. It's too easy to quip that God can do whatever God wants to do when things go bad. I don't buy that. Oh, it's true. I just don't buy that as the argument. I actually believe there is a legitimate coherent theological reason why God is doing things. I don't believe in coincidence or fate. I believe God is in control. And yes, God can do whatever God wants to do. But that's not what he's saying here. God is doing something in your life for a very important reason. We tend to think this way. Life is good. I'm just waiting for the other shoe to drop. One of my friends just got laid off this week. Okay, we tend to wait for the other shoe to drop. That's really bad theology. You see, really good theology is this. When God thinks my faith is ready to grow, he's going to bring challenge into my life. So you enjoy the rest while you get it. But then, when he thinks your faith is ready to go to a deeper level, then something comes along your way. And so, the very last verse, verse 31, they, this is all the earth, will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. They will proclaim the righteousness of the Lord. You see, that's where you start out with this deep suffering and affliction, and you work your way through the reality, and if your faith is real, you end up with this. God does know what he's doing. And you end up very stronger, much stronger than when you went in to it. I didn't want ICU three weeks ago in COVID. And so I wrestled all week with my faith. Okay, Lord, what are you doing with my faith? And that's why I posted every day. A bunch of you followed me. And I posted one post on the frailty of life. I didn't expect 1,400 people to read it. Over 1,400, but they did. So I touched the nerve somewhere with people. We are frail. You see, suffering is the one language we share with the world. And it's also the one event that drives our faith deeper. Faith is not academic. Faith is a genuine, organic response to God. And that happens through suffering. Or you can shake your fist. It's your choice. That's the choice that you get to have. So Jesus, being a true human, had to experience that And that word forsaken is hard to capture. So let me give you a metaphor. When all four of my children left home when I grew up, I told each one the same thing. That pretty soon, next week you're going to be in college or whatever you're doing, and I won't be there. So you have to learn what it means to walk with the Lord. And that's a dance. It's a dance. Some of you that are older know what I'm talking about. So I said, so here are three scenarios you're going to face. You're going to walk out on the dance floor with the Lord, and you're going to sway to the music with Him. And it's so beautiful and so deeply fulfilling, you're going to wonder how I could ever doubt. And then one day you're going to walk out on the dance floor and he's going to be stepping on your toes. You're going to be banging knees and it's like you're you're dancing to two different tunes. That's when he's getting your faith because you're moving in the wrong direction. 
That's when he's going, hey, stop it. We call that sin for a reason. Go this way, not that way. And that's when that relationship with him is like this. That's his act of grace, to get in your face a little bit and step on your toes. And then one day you walk out on the dance floor and he doesn't show up. He's all, you're all alone. Well, I thought we were going to dance today. He didn't, he didn't actually leave you. You see, what he's doing is he's stepping back into the shadows. He says, let's just see what their faith really is like. He's still there. He's just quiet. He's letting your faith mature for that second, that moment. When, uh, when I was still married to my first wife, we had two children. And my son uh, is, um, let's just say he was a challenge to raise. So my wife had childproofed the entire house, except for one table with a vase on it. So you childproof the entire house. What about that? And she said, well, if I childproof everything, he never gets tested. He needs one thing to challenge his faith and test him. So, okay, so here's another metaphor. Walking down the hallway, and here's a corner. And look around the corner, and I can see my toddler play. He doesn't know that I'm there, but I am. He's safe. He's under my protection, under my will. And I'm sitting there just enjoying watching him. I wonder what he's going to do as he looks at the vase. Oh, am I going to play with the vase? Well, you know, I'll go do something different. And so we watch him without what we've been teaching, his values. Okay, that's where God is. When you walk out on the dance floor and he doesn't show up, he's quietly sitting in the shadows watching you. That's where your faith is put to the test. How real is it? After she died, fast, interestingly enough, he walks up to it. Now he's filled with quite a bit of anger. He just lost his mom. Looks at the vase. He looks over at me. Looks at the vase. Looks over at me. I said, don't do it. And he knocks it off. And that's sometimes us as well, isn't it? <laughs> sometimes we fail as well. You see, when he's silent, he has not abandoned you. That's when he lets you get to prove how real your faith is. Not to him. He already knows it. To you. That's where you get to mature your faith. So when Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's his last test. And God got really quiet and looked, I think, with pride on his son and said, watch his faith now, just like he did with Job. Have you seen my servant Job? There's no one like him on the earth. And Satan went after him with God's permission, and God was just really proud of him. And I think what happened there is that on the cross, I think God did the same thing. He simply sat back with a smile on his face and said, watch my son. And so that was his last temptation. He could have come down off the cross like that. But as he felt that aloneness, and that was his, that was his, his picture to us, that he really believed why he came, because he lived out his faith to the very last breath, even in the midst of loneliness. So this passage is actually very, very significant. I'm going to read to you one more passage, and we'll close with this. Hebrews 4. It's a passage that you know full well. For the word of God is living and active 
sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates. This is how powerful this word is. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing, nothing in all of creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything, everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to, to, to whom we must give an account. That doesn't sound very encouraging, does it? You can't hide. You can't run. But then listen to the very next verse. In your English Bibles, there's a subtext dividing them. I wish that wasn't there. It doesn't belong there. Here's the very next verse. Well, here's what we just said. Everything is laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Therefore, because of this truth, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess. That's what happened when my wife died. And I started to laugh while the tears flowed. Tears of sorrow and pain and loneliness mixed with tears of laughter and joy. The Lord just took away my life, and I still trust him and believe in him. My faith is real. Okay? But then he doesn't stop there. For we do not have a high priest. Here's the reason. Who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. By the way, that's the word for today, empathy. He now understands us because he lived life just like we do. He goes on and says, We do not have a high priest who is able to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. He wanted to experience life as a true human while he was here on the earth. So he trusted the Holy Spirit, just like we have to do. But then he goes on. Let us, therefore, there's that wonderful word again, therefore, let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive punishment and shame. Oh, wait, that's not in there. So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. You see what this is saying when you put these two things together? The first paragraph is saying God knows everything there is to know about you. You can't hide everything. And the second paragraph tells you and he still loves you anyway. He still loves you anyway. Is there any greater gift in life than to have someone know the truth about you and love you anyway? That's why I'm so grateful for Nancy. She knows about the worst and loves me anyway. That's what you get with the Lord. And so this last temptation on the cross is the Father, I think, standing back in the shadows, quiet, and letting him demonstrate and live out his faith like I did when my first wife died, when I did what I had cancer, like I did in ICU, and like many of you have done over and over and over again. Found out my faith is real. How's your faith? Father, thank you for... Thank you for giving us these pictures of Jesus, the way he lived out his faith. They relate so much to our lives and the things that we go through every day. Lord, I will be the first to admit to you that it's very difficult to live out faith when challenge comes. It, it is. It's so easy to get doubtful or angry or whatever or pretend it doesn't exist. And yet, I know that's not what you desire. 
what you desire is for our faith to grow deeper. Thank you for leading us that way. In your son's name we pray. Amen. This concludes the live streaming portion of our um, service. So for those of you online, thank you for, uh, thanks for watching.